Hey, it's Mark. I'm taking some time off with the family for a few days, but picking up where we left off, in last week's social media segment, we touched on the trend of maternal assisted cesarean sections. That trend made some of us a bit squeamish, and not only because of the TikTok videos that depict moms literally lifting their newborns out of their own wombs during C-sections. Maternal mortality rates have actually doubled in the U.S. over the last two decades, new research shows, and deaths are highest among black mothers. The latter problem was underscored in May when U.S. Olympic champion sprinter Tori Bowie died, reportedly as a result of childbirth complications. Officials said Bowie, who was just a few years removed from her gold-caliber performance at the 2017 World Track and Field Championships, likely was undergoing labor when she passed away at the young age of 32. Black Americans face an elevated risk of preeclampsia and eclampsia, the NIH says, contributing to a higher death rate before and after childbirth. And medical examiners link these health problems to Bowie's death, actually. What's the root cause of the higher risks faced by black Americans? Researchers have attributed some of the disparity to access to health care, and a lot of it to the problem of structural racism, in which current policies and procedures may actually keep people from being healthy. We need new solutions to this age-old problem. Enter Dr. Kemi Alugemo, who many in our audience know for her roles at biotech firm Ultragenics and the group Women of Color in Pharma. But she's also a board member of a nonprofit group whose goal is to save the lives of mothers and newborns in indigent communities with high levels of infant and maternal mortality. In addition to the group's rationale, I was also intrigued by Kemi's comments about what seems to be a dysfunctioning system of charitable health care. Instead of combating the persistent disparities in global health, this system seems to be perpetuating them. This week on the podcast, the state of maternal mortality and the approach to eradicating this at Clinics for Life. Given the shared goal of eliminating healthcare disparities that affect the most vulnerable, I believe these are issues that all healthcare marketers would do well to familiarize themselves with. And let's just hear with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll give an update on the state of data privacy policy when it comes to companies using consumers' health data for marketing purposes. And Jack, what's on tap for the healthcare social media front this week? This week, we're talking about Elon Musk's MRI, the controversy around the lobotomy chic trend online, and what shots of apple cider vinegar can do for your gut. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hey, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and it's my great privilege to be speaking with Dr. Kemi Olugemo. Kemi, how are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. Uh, so you're a physician scientist. Uh, you're also vice president of global clinical development for the biotech firm Ultragenics, which uh, focuses on treatments for rare neurological diseases. You and I first met while I was reporting on a piece about the group Women of Color in Pharma, for which you handle external communications. Um, and uh, you're also a philanthropist devoted to advancing global health and gender equity. And your work there is equally as fascinating. I thought maybe we just could start out with having you tell us about your role with the group Clinics for Life uh, and a maybe a little bit about the organization. Absolutely. I'd love to. So um, Clinics for Life was founded with a very clear and specific purpose. And what we are trying to do is to deliver maternal care to disadvantaged developing communities with four babies dying every minute and losing a mother uh, to complications from childbirth, we decided to heed the call to action. Our founder, Robert Turner, likes to say that we are not faced by some strange and incurable disease that's ravaging newborns 
and their mothers, but rather by a lack of sustainable solutions to address these healthcare imbalances that are in developing countries and in uh, countries that are also developed like the US. Um, so we estimate that uh, up to 85% of these tragic deaths can be preventable with access to proper medical care. And that is where our focus is, right on the access. Indeed, uh, the, the more I read about this organization, uh, the more I was intrigued about its rationale, uh, given that infant mortality remains a huge problem, uh, even here in the US. Um, so uh, how about we kind of uh, segue right into that? You know, talk about the state of, of maternal mortality uh, in this country. Yeah, yeah. So myself and, and many others, I'm sure, um, heard of the sudden death of U.S. Olympic champion sprinter Tori Bowie, who died in May of this year from complications of childbirth. And it was really shocking to me that a 32-year-old former athlete um, in the U.S., someone really of means, would die in this manner. Um, but uh, Tori fell prey to um, systemic health inequities that really persist in the U.S. According to the National Institute of Health, Black Americans face an elevated risk of preeclampsia and eclampsia. Both of these contribute to a higher rate of death, both before and after childbirth. Um, in fact, the maternal death rate in Black Americans is much higher than any other racial group, and it doesn't matter which source you look at. Um, and it's approximately three times higher for black women than it is for white women. So um, when you look at this and the fact that when you compare the U.S. to other developed countries, um, we have far higher rates that are predominantly driven by these disproportionate deaths in communities of color, specifically for black women. We are at a crisis right now um, in terms of maternal mortality in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, it's so tragic. Thank you for mentioning the the tragic death of, of Tori Bowie, uh, the the elite Olympic athlete uh, who died of complications from childbirth. You know, there was just a study this month, in fact, uh, in JAMA, um, saying that maternal mortality rates have doubled in the U.S. over the last two decades, with deaths deaths highest among Black mothers. Um, just to put it in perspective, in 1999, there were an estimated 12.7 deaths per 100,000 live births. And in 2019, that figure rose to 32.2 deaths per 100,000 live births, uh, according to their study. And this doesn't even include data from the pandemic years. Uh, and we know that that only exacerbated the situation. So uh, people can check that out. What can we say about uh, women's health globally, Kemi? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, the news on the global front isn't much better than it is in the U.S. Um, so being um, a man or a woman can impact your health significantly. And there are biological and gender related differences, but there are also socio uh, cultural and economic differences. And in many societies globally, women are disadvantaged by discrimination. Um, some of these um, sociocultural issues prevent women and girls from getting quality um, health care. So, again, the issue of access. And, you know, I can, I can name several issues that are pervasive in many countries, and they tend to be more of an issue in developing countries. So, unequal power relationships, you know, between men and women, um, reduced access to education and paid employment, poverty. Even though poverty can affect both men and women, it tends to have a higher burden on women and girls, in particular their health. Um, there is this disproportionate focus on reproductive roles for women that is not focused on men. 
um, we can't also forget about violence against women. So, you know, when you take all these issues, you know, into consideration, there's just this gaping divide in healthcare outcomes for, for women compared to men. Absolutely. And equalizing those outcomes uh, should be the goal uh, of, of everyone, including um, people in this industry in healthcare marketing. And so, you know, the shared goal of universal healthcare um, is, is of, of interest, of, of great interest to everyone. And that's why I felt like, you know, marketers need to familiarize themselves with clinics for life and with, um, the, the, these, these issues that we're talking about. Um, let's talk about, you know, segue to, to some of the, the root, root causes, you know, of, uh, these inequities. Yeah. So, um, in the U S um, a lot of inequities are caused by systemic, um, systemic issues. Um, if we come back to, you know, the disproportionate mortality for black women, um, unfortunately, you know, that's rooted in, in, in racial discrimination and social determinants of health. Um, I, I'm a clinical researcher and I think about clinical trials and I was very surprised several years ago to find out that it wasn't until the 1990s that the FDA um, developed guidelines to actually require women participate in research. And so, you know, prior to that, we had this patriarchy where, you know, we were using data and results from men um, and generalizing them to women and predominantly white men, right? Um, so these are, you know, some of the root causes that are being addressed, but, you know, there's still a substantial gap. And that's, you know, why um, Clinics for Life was created and why we've stepped in to try to address some of these urgent gaps, um, in addition to, you know, healthcare policy, which we think also plays a significant role. Yeah. And then, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, regulations, the FDA just this year, you know, just this past February, uh, said it's going to require a diversity plan for clinical trials. So, you know, think of all those years of clinical studies, uh, where, as you say, we were just kind of collecting data on most, you know, predominantly white men, uh, and then just, um, kind of generalizing it, you know, to, to the pop population at large. Um, so, um, these, these things are finally changing, but, uh, there's a lot, a lot has been transpired in the meantime. Um, the other thing that I was intrigued by, you know, when, when we, we're talking about this, uh, doing this podcast was the, the, the problem with, with charitable healthcare. Um, and you know, the more I, I read about that, the article that you pointed me to show that, that healthcare and, and the charities that are providing access to care, uh, are instead of kind of remediating these problems like infant mortality, um, unfortunately, you know, th these problems, uh, un under the current system are, are being perpetuated. Well, what, what is the problem with, with charitable solutions? How come these things aren't working? Yeah, so so you bring up a very good point, and um, it's really unfortunate that you know after decades decades of pouring money in this um, problem, we haven't come to any solutions. We've actually you know regressed, right? You mentioned how um, mortality rates um, are are worsening in the U.S. in the past decade, and so billions of dollars later, with contributions coming from various sectors things are getting worse. Um, so now we realize that throwing money, you know, at these problems is really not the solution. When you keep throwing money at a problem, um, there's a sustainability issue that also comes into play. And what we've done is to develop solutions that we feel will be sustainable um, by not creating these dis 
dependencies within disadvantaged communities, which essentially place these communities at the mercy of charities that are well-intentioned, okay? Um, the COVID pandemic has highlighted these dependencies. Just think about how vaccine delivery um, that was intended for developing countries um, really didn't happen as it was planned. Um, and rather than creating and supporting independent health services in any given country, um, we continue to promote these dependency-based solutions. So that's why these uh, past you know, um, attempts at solving this problem have not worked. Right. And the problem, you know, comes down to, uh, as the article goes on to point out, really, um, that historically, you know, these groups don't encourage real innovation. And so you have the same, you know, solutions being tried. Um, and uh, when you have diminishing levels of care, as we said, you need to, to continue to innovate. And these groups are not, you know, doing that. Um, and uh, it's just perpetuating the inequities. There's also exactly. also something you point out, a problem of donor apathy. You want to double click on that one for a sec? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So donors want to be able to understand where their money is going, right? And if you continue to donate money and you don't really see um, any return on that investment and the return that they're looking for is really for a problem to, to be solved then it's really hard to um, motivate people to keep giving money. And we've, we've noticed that, you know, um, a lot of uh, organizations are really tightening their fiscal belts. Uh, global economies are also tightening their fiscal belts. And so the apathy is really setting in. Yeah. People, uh, you know, kind of just assume a lot uh, without kind of following up and, and checking. Exactly. Talk about, uh, you know, how the clinics for, clinics for Life clinics actually work. You have something called a shared practice agreement model. Can you talk about that for a sec? We do. We do. So Clinics for Life created a hybrid model that we feel will address um, a lot of the issues that we've just been talking about, Mark. And so what we are trying to do is combine the best of charity with social entrepreneurship. So uh, what we do is we, um, for each clinic that we aim to build, we um, would like to have one uh, donor, a partner for each clinic. And we build and equip a physical clinic um, with the use of these donor funds in areas of special need that we identify beforehand. We use the donor funding to purchase um, the land, to construct the clinic, and to fully equip the site. Um, these centers are designed from the ground up uh, with a singular purpose to be financially self-sustaining for decades and to enable ongoing delivery of care without relying on continuous funding from the donor. Um, and then the, the other um, intention is that over time, these models will actually generate profit. So once a clinic is properly is constructed, we staff the clinic and then we open it up to the public and um, it operates like a normal clinic, except the physicians there, um, they agree to see a certain number of patients who ordinarily would not be able to pay. And that's really the premise of the shared practice agreement. Okay. So this provides an agreement, you know, under which um, clinicians can do their this you know, incredibly important work um, and donors, you know, can feel confident, you know, that the money is going, you know, right toward where it's most needed. Talk about, you know, this model in action, you know, are there other clinics that you're setting up right now that are already set up Yeah, and, and how people can get involved, whether they're a clinician uh, or, or a donor, potential donor, or, you know, healthcare marketers, is, is there a role for 
you know, our industry and kind of promoting this and, uh, you know, get, getting behind it? Sure, sure. So right now we have um, two clinics that are in, um, in construction in the Philippines, which is the first location that we're in. And um, so the, the areas that we identify have to be um, an area of special need, but they also have to be able to sustain um, paying patients, right? Because you can't have um, only patients who would you know, be um, looking for help and not able to pay. And so, um, you know, we very carefully pick these these areas that we think would be amenable to this particular solution. So we're starting in Asia. Um, we also have plans to deploy the same model in Africa and in the U.S., um, but that's really in planning stages. And so um, we are looking for donor partners right now. We're looking for volunteers with various skill sets um, in um, the healthcare industry. We believe in the power of technology to improve the delivery of care and um, are looking specifically for anyone who agrees with our mission and is, is willing to um, help um, with, you know, all the, <laughs> the work that we really have ahead of us right now. Sure. Uh, and uh, if you want to check out more about that, the, the website is clinics, the number four life.com. Uh, and you can, you know, read all about the, the group's vital mission uh, and how to get involved. Kemi, I just want to kind of, after this fascinating discussion, you know, on, on all fronts, you know, including, you know, highlighting these uh, inequities, which are worsening um, the problems with, um, you know, past charitable solutions uh, and, you know, clinics for life's role in, in ameliorating uh, these issues. Um, you know, what, what, what do you want to leave? What impression do you want to leave healthcare marketers with? You know, we, we've seen a kind of an uptick the last couple of years, uh, maybe, maybe more than that last several years of, uh, you know, agencies uh, as well as uh, pharma companies kind of getting behind not only, you know, DE&I issues uh, and addressing inequities in their communities, but uh, also, um, you know, supporting philanthropic causes um, and, and, you know, doing campaigns and, and whatnot. I want to leave you with the last word here in terms of, um, you know, what healthcare marketers should think about this. And, you know, um, you know, if they're kind of on the fence about, you know, looking for that next philanthropic cause, you know, why they should really con consider this one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so women are essentially half of the population, right? And so if we want a sustainable and healthy society, we can't continue to ignore this problem. And I believe the private sector has a responsibility to collaborate closely with policymakers um, to help to increase funding and ensure that um, our clinical trials, for example, include more women. We need to really look at the entire life sciences ecosystem. We need to take a hard look at gender bias in our studies um, and any, you know, AI algorithms, for example, or any other supporting or enabling technology um, in our workforce. Um, we, we need to make sure that our teams have diverse and gender balanced teams so that um, we have you know, adequate representation and people are looking and studying the right problems um, so that we can create these sustainable solutions. So essentially, it's going to take everyone you know, coming together and acting and, and doing something different um, because the past solutions have not worked. Right, right. Okay, well said. Okay, so again, if you want to help disadvantaged communities uh, and this very, you know, tragic issue of uh, maternal infant mortality, check out clinicsforlife.com. Kemi, uh, this has been a, a great privilege. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us today on the, on the podcast. And thank you so much for having me, Mark. Absolutely.
Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. In the past few months, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, has been on a health data privacy roll, increasingly cracking down on healthcare companies that use consumers' health data without their consent. GoodRx, BetterHelp, Flow Health, and Premom have all joined the roster of companies who have recently received scrutiny or been sued and fined by the FTC over their data sharing practices. The FTC is turning up the heat on the issue to fill in a gap in the U.S., which doesn't have a federal data privacy law, like the European Union has the GDPR. As a result, companies here are freely sharing people's sensitive health data with third parties. Laura Aldridge is a vice president and data privacy officer at RAP. In the absence of a federal privacy law, I feel like the FTC are using all the rules in their box to, you know, to to enforce generally things that are under GDPR, which is the fairness principle, the transparency principle. So making sure that we can use consumers that are aware that we're using data for marketing purposes. Ethical concerns about the lack of regulation and data sharing for marketing purposes have been mounting in the last year. When Roe v. Wade was overturned in 2022, experts expressed concern that health data could be used to prosecute women seeking abortions in anti-abortion states. One of the bills introduced in Congress this year around data privacy regulation, the Uphold Privacy Act, was in response to the abortion issue. Sponsored by Senator Amy Klobuchar, the bill would prohibit the use of health data in advertising and the sale of location data to and from data brokers. Plus, a handful of states have recently acted new data privacy laws, like the California Consumer Privacy Act, which gives consumers the right to demand to see all the information a company has saved on them. But major legislation that would enact more widespread change on the federal level is unlikely anytime soon. So this patchwork of state laws, combined with FTC actions, will serve as regulation for healthcare companies for the time being. With the upcoming elections in the next year, Aldridge believes federal data privacy policy will take a back seat. Personally, I would be happily surprised if we see something signed with the next election. I'm Lesha Bouchak, a senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. This is the part of the broadcast where I hop in to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. We had a few stories that missed the cut this week, including Sandra Bullock's longtime partner passing away at 57 due to ALS, Guy Fieri buying a hog at a fair in support of cancer research, Cleveland Cavaliers point guard Ricky Rubio putting his career on hold indefinitely to focus on mental health, and researchers working on synthetic alcohol that could result in no hangover or ill effects. But we start this week, as we have the past couple of weeks, with Elon Musk. The Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg fight, a fight that nobody asked for, but most have said that they would watch, might have a hiccup. Musk tweeted on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, over the weekend that he may require surgery and plan to receive an MRI of his neck and upper back on Monday. The world's richest man said he might need an operation to strengthen the titanium plate holding his C5 and C6 vertebrae together. If Musk requires surgery, it could delay the proposed cage match between him and Zuckerberg that has been in the works for weeks. Days before, the 52-year-old Musk said the fight would be streamed on X and proceeds would go to charity for veterans. Zuckerberg proposed a fight date of August 26, but added on threads that he is not holding his breath. This all comes amid news that Musk's brain implant startup Neuralink raised $280 million in its latest fundraising round led by Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. 
The company is aiming to begin its first human trial later this year. And apropos of nothing, I wanted to include a quote from Tesla Economics responding to Elon Musk saying that he might have to undergo surgery following the MRI. Quote, Elon's strongest weapon isn't his walrus attack, it's his vision, his heart for innovation, and his relentless drive to challenge the status quo in order to make the future better. Lesha, I don't even know where we go from there, but there was That's a, health, a lot. there was a healthcare hook in there with with you know the world's richest man needing an MRI. Yeah, I mean somehow I missed the whole cage fight thing. Like, was <laughs> <laughs> that supposed to be like a physical fight between them? They're, they've been talking about doing a physical fight, and it's <laughs> apparently like I didn't even know that they had looked at a date, and it was all coming to a head, and now. He's kind of low-key backing out a little bit. I saw somebody online comparing it to having like the, oh, my girlfriend lives in Canada kind of excuse where Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, you keep saying you want to and now you're backing out. And for what it's worth, I mean, I've seen pictures of Mark Zuckerberg doing jujitsu and all sorts of MMA and and Elon is now saying that he's going to get an MRI before we even had a fight. So. He's definitely a guy who's kind of, you know, known for his like bravado and his show and whether he really means what he's saying is not always clear because he's kind of all about the show, I think. And we saw that too last year with the whole acquisition of Twitter. I mean, he tried multiple times to back out of buying it and went through Mm. and spent $44 billion. There was a lot of back and forth there. Yeah. So maybe it's something similar on this front, but we'll stay tuned for however this turns out. As of this recording, we don't have the results of the MRI, but we'll, we'll we'll keep tuned in on that. In our most recent episode, we discussed the vaccinated memes and Mark noted very astutely that while the trend seeks to employ anti-vaxxer lingo or claims in a humorous way against the community, there is an element to it that can be construed as in bad taste. Led primarily by Gen Z and other very online people, oftentimes jokes on social media can take on an increasingly sarcastic, bizarre and nihilistic tone. To that end, a recent op-ed in the Washington Post by Caroline Riley criticized the lobotomy chic trend that has remained an odd yet prominent part of online discourse for years. She relates the story of famed playwright Tennessee Williams' sister Rose, who underwent a lobotomy, on how mental health was stigmatized and treated from the 1930s to the 1960s, particularly through the institutionalization of women and the use of lobotomy procedures. Riley also highlighted what she deemed the memification of lobotomies and romanticization of sanitariums, knowing that certain hashtags on TikTok and viral tweets on X glamorize the phenomenon. She also knows that there are makeup tutorials on TikTok that show users how to achieve the lobotomy chic look of sullen eyes and swollen lips. She takes great issue with the online popularization of lobotomies and how users have embraced the jokes and memes in an effort to mock the girl boss feminism that came about during the last decade. Quote, put simply, this is not just about making light of the past, but being insensitive to the generations that came before us, but about having such a myopic view of society that you fail to see the ways in which the legacy of these horrors lives on. The op-ed generated more than 1,400 comments on the Washington Post website and widespread discussion online. And for what it's worth, I completely agree with the suggestion that mocking the at times brutal and vicious medical procedures that countless patients were subjected to can come off as crude and disrespectful. At the same time, I think it's important to note that this humor has made the Internet into what it currently is. And no one is out there seriously wishing for a lobotomy or a forced trip to the sanitarium. Rather, these jokes and snarky asides are intended as a way to critique the institutional challenges and chronic societal flaws faced most acutely by Gen Zers and to some extent younger millennials. 
This generation, with its emphasis on mental health care and self-preservation, has a clear desire to even ever so briefly divorce itself from the sense of doom that can come with existing in the third decade of the 21st century. In this case, that's being able to switch off the brain just for a little bit, which is what a lobotomy represents in a more figurative sense. It was an interesting, I don't know if you got the chance to read the piece, Lesha, but it mm-hmm. was a very interesting discussion. And I've, I've seen it for years, people talking about lobotomies and, you know, if I can just smooth out my brain and, and those kinds of references. But there is that kind of going back to the vaccinated memes that we talked about last week, this kind of do you have to say it in that sort of way? Is it, is it mocking too much where you almost lose the point of what the point you're trying to make? Yeah. I think it's one of those, you know, internet things like, again, like we've discussed in the past where it's sort of like, you kind of have to be in on the joke to, you know, I think the last line that you mentioned was important where it's, um, you know, it's not so much that they're kind of making light of, uh, lobotomies and in the past, but it's, they're actually kind of using it as a joke to critique the current state of mental health or all these other challenges that the younger generations are facing, as you mentioned, um, this idea of switching off your brain and disassociating because everything else is so horrible that even a lobotomy doesn't seem as bad. So like, I guess that's kind of the joke that they're pushing. And I, I've seen the lobotomy chic thing and the aesthetic and the joke kind of be on the internet for years now. I mean, it's been on Tumblr for like probably 10 years. Um, so it's not particularly new, but at the same time I did, uh, you know, read over the, the Washington post op-ed and when you actually reflect and learn about the reality of lobotomies in the past, it's actually very devastating. Um, when you think about, uh, the women who were subjected to lobotomies back in the day, um, you know, now we're sort of uh, we have some distance from that. So I think it's a little bit easier for the younger generations who've never experienced that or been close to that um, to kind of create these uh, memes or jokes. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you when you really do reflect on it and, and read that article, um, you realize there's a lot more weight to it. Absolutely. And and to your point, I, I skimmed through some of the comments because, like I said, there were 1,400 in the comment section underneath the article. And there were people in there talking about experiences that they had either had personally or right. with family members. And for them, it's very real. And for you know our generation, being younger and not having that as readily available, there is a certain distance that allows you to kind of poke fun, whereas other people, I think, maybe hold it a lot more sensitively and, and, and justifiably so. But your point is well taken where it's been around for years going back to the previous decade in terms of people being like, I've had enough internet, I've had enough society being on all the time. Can I just yeah. turn off for a second? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the, the last lobotomy ever performed was like in the sixties. So again, that point that there are, there's still a generation of people who lived through that and we're pretty close to it. Um, and you know, the Gen Z and millennial generation probably didn't have that much, uh, closeness to it. Um, but I am sure we'll be seeing more lobotomy jokes as time goes on, given people's desire to quote unquote disassociate from the, um, the dark aspects of modern life, I guess. Yeah. That, that morbid fascination that comes with being on the internet never seems to go away. And the last story that we're going to talk about, we often on this show talk about unorthodox health trends and life hacks that proliferate social media. And we can add this one to the ever growing canon. Last week, Vogue's digital beauty editor, Hannah Coates penned a piece titled, I take an apple cider vinegar shot every morning. Here are the benefits. 
Coates point out that apple cider vinegar, which converts crushed apples to acidic acid by way of yeast and sugar, has had a swell of interest in terms of Google searches and millions of views on TikTok in recent years. Since raw, unfiltered apple cider vinegar contains a significant amount of mother, which is bacteria and yeast, it is said to contain probiotics that are helpful for gut health. Since taking apple cider vinegar by itself or in water in the morning, Coates says she has only been hungry when she's supposed to, which is at lunch or again in the evening for dinner, and less bloated and more energized. While she said she takes it as a shot, she spoke with an expert and apple cider vinegar advocate who recommended mixing one to two tablespoons with 15 to 30 milliliters of water so as to not wear down tooth enamel. Still, Coates is a proponent of this health trend. She says, quote, to conclude, apple cider vinegar is not, in my opinion, another fad. Having soft launched a daily helping into my routine a few weeks ago, I now know it's here for good. And while I know it's not some cure-all, it's a one dietary addition that has definitely improved my digestion for the better. And for that alone, it's a resounding yes from me. Now, in researching this for the podcast, it should be noted that a registered dietitian at the Cleveland Clinic was featured in a blog just last month on apple cider vinegar, highlighting its ability to lower blood sugar, reduce acid reflux, and aid in weight loss. But she also noted that there are side effects consumers should be mindful of and that studies about apple cider vinegar's possible benefits are small and require additional research to bolster those claims. Lesha, I don't know what your cabinet looks like. I know that I have a big bottle of apple cider vinegar for various cooking means. I've never once thought of putting it in a shot glass and shooting it, but yeah, same. she she did, and I guess she's reaping some sort of benefits from it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is another one of those like TikTok and uh, internet health trends um, that are people tied to weight loss where there's not substantial evidence behind that actually aiding weight loss. Um, I know the, the Cleveland clinic dietitian you mentioned, um, you know, she, she kind of makes that link, but then also says there is no concrete evidence that it has any long-term appetite suppression benefits. Um, and so the, the quote unquote apple cider vinegar diet, isn't going to be, a, you know, your best option. Um, if you are looking to lose weight, um, but, you know, that being said, um, there are some health benefits to it. Uh, you don't probably have to take like a shot of it every morning. You can probably just add it in a salad or, you know, find ways to, to cook with it. But it's, it's definitely one of the, the less harmful <laughs> fat diets we've seen, I guess, on and the I, Internet. And I want to ask you on that point, because you've written so many pieces for us about, you know, there was the the only egg diet that people were trying. There was the, oh, yeah. the nature's Ozempic. Like you've, you've really gone down the rabbit hole when you just think about what is this fascination that we all have about like, you know, maybe not taking a medical or exercise approach. It's like, if I just do this one trick that fixes it all. I mean, I think um, people are always looking for an easy solution for things like weight loss and before actual Ozempic, um, people are always kind of looking to fad diets or, you know, these uh, supplements that claimed weight loss to kind of uh, be an easy fix, I guess. Um, so I think it's it's easy for people to kind of latch on to these very simple, cost effective things like apple uh, cider vinegar, for example. It seems easy. It seems harmless. And I think people kind of latch on to that, uh, place all their hopes onto one thing to, to kind of say, oh, I'm going to hopefully lose weight by doing this. And this is not the best podcasting, but our podcast producer just put on our big screen here. Wheatgrass you know, shots. Wheatgrass shots and all the things you can buy online. That was another online. thing that was really right. big on TikTok for a while, too. <laughs> what is it? 
What does it say here? Wheatgrass has a nutrient dense drink made from young grass that's blended or juiced. <laughs> and that's the thing too, is none of these are ever appetizing. Like I do like putting apple cider vinegar in a salad yeah. where you mix it around with other ingredients, but the idea of putting in a shot glass, like you do whiskey or tequila, <laughs> which I don't have any problem with might be a bridge too far. Like wheatgrass, the, even the word sounds like vaguely healthy and kind of yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like I can see how it's can seem like a, a healthy <laughs> thing, even though you don't really know what it is. Well, maybe for next week we can get some wheatgrass shots and we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, do them before. we should do a, a we, taste testing. We'll yeah. do them on air. We'll do that. Apple cider vinegar. Yeah, that's and we'll, a good idea. We'll see how our guts improve as the show goes on. Follow it up with some bath salts? No. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> maybe not that part. <laughs> Well, I appreciate everyone tuning in for this week. And next week, we will have all three of us back in the studio. So look forward to reconvening then. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 